You're listening to Conversations, brought to you by TechSquare ATL. All right, I'm sitting here with Merrick First, who's the creator of Flashpoint. Merrick, thanks for taking the time. Hey, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, rested up. Uh, hopefully, uh, you are too. I know you just coming through the demo days here in Atlanta for Cohort 4, Batch 5. I was talking to some folks. We had good night's sleep last night for the first time in a couple of days. Yeah. <laughs> Well, um, there's a there's a lot to be uh, to, to unfold here. Um, you know, not only do you have your your own career, but the role that Flashpoint has played here in at TechSquare in, in Atlanta as well. Uh, so, for people who don't know you, I mean, what is your background? Where did you come from? What have you done beyond before you hit Flashpoint? Before I hit Flashpoint, well, you know, aside from Flashpoint, I'm a professor. I'm a distinguished professor of computing at Georgia Tech, and I've been in Atlanta, I guess, almost 12 years now. I've done both academic things and business things my whole career, so I've gone up these two painful but very different <laughs> learning curves. Uh, before I was at Tech, I was a professor at Berkeley, and I got recruited there to run the International Computer Science Institute, which was a freestanding research institute with about 80 PhDs coming from all over the country, funded mostly by Europeans. And before that, I was at Carnegie Mellon for a lot of years. I was a professor. I was a dean there, computer scientist. Oh, My background is uh, theoretical computer science, which is not something I do a lot of these days. And along the way, I've done uh, seven startups. Actually, Flashpoint's now my eighth startup. Oh, wow. And these were all companies that uh, I founded or founded with partners. Sometimes they were my ideas. Sometimes they were other people's ideas. Uh, companies, we raised a lot of money for some of them and had various exits. And how, how early was your first one? What, what was the? It was in the early 80s. It was uh, the first company we did was uh, we invented, I invented electronic post-it notes. The name of the product was called Smart Notes. And we ended up going into the um, software publishing business, add-on software publishing business in, uh, I guess it was like 85 or 86. And that product became a bestseller on PCs. And the company that uh, sold it was called Personix, which was eventually acquired by DataWatch. And it was a seller of uh, add-on software for PCs. Well, and, and so that was your first taste of entrepreneurism. It was. Startup. But you were in the academic world at the time, right? Yes, I was a young professor at Carnegie Mellon at the time, right? And so your I mean, second I wrote, one? I wrote the code. <laughs> <laughs> so your second one? Where'd that one come from? That was much more boring. That was, uh, we were in the business of selling software to universities. I got into that in a kind of funny way. A lawyer friend called me up and said that uh, there was this uh, woman who was a client of his who had some software that she had had some other people from Carnegie Mellon, where I was, built the software and it wasn't working would I act as an expert witness? And I looked at it, and it was <laughs> it was pretty much a mess, and I could see why she was thinking to sue them. And uh, he took me out to lunch to thank me for the work at some point, and I said, you know, how much did you pay those guys? How much did she pay those guys for that? And he said some astronomical number, and I said, you know, for that kind of money, you could have had someone like me write the code. <laughs> and, and they said, okay. <laughs> So the next thing I know, I'm hiring people and writing the code for this uh, academic auditing software. And uh, after a while, that software was selling. It was sort of selling at ten, fifteen thousand dollars a pop to universities. And then there was a—I don't remember exactly the name of the storm—but there was a big storm in Florida. And the business that her husband was in 
uh, was uh, the side. They did. They sold siding and they sold uh, windows. I think it was one of these Anderson window companies, and they made so much money selling those th- those things down to the people who's, who had lost all their um, lost their homes down in Florida, that she decided to go out of the business. And she called me up and she said, "You want to buy this business from me?" Hmm. And I mistakenly said, "Okay." So, <laughs> so this young guy that was our programmer and I bought this business, and then we found ourselves slogging through ten thousand dollar sales to uh, colleges and universities across the country. And I wouldn't recommend that to anybody. And eventually, uh, I had a chance. I sold that. I sold my part of it back to uh, my partner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, in, at Carnegie Mellon, at Berkeley, and at Georgia Tech, you've you've started companies at all three of those places. Yeah. Uh, when I was younger, I used to think that I was uh, like a good problem solver, and that's why I was doing it. Now, when I look back, I think maybe I was just opportunistic. And when these opportunities came along, I jumped on them and found myself going back and forth and between the academic and and the business opportunities. So your time in, in Berkeley, what, what was that like? I mean, who were you interacting with out there? Well, when I moved out there, it was the late, I guess mid to like 95, 96-ish. And I got, re- I ended up there, we were, <laughs> it's a funny story how I got there. I was, my wife and I had put this enormous addition on the back of our house in, in Pittsburgh. We had taken off the whole back of the house and we built this giant kitchen, a two-story addition. And I remember I was driving back to the house for a meeting uh, to go over the punch list with the contractor and the architect. And I walk into the kitchen. As I'm going back, a guy calls me, and then Christos Papanitmitrio calls me, who's a friend from Berkeley, calls me and said, uh, how'd you like to move to the Bay Area? <laughs> so I walk into the kitchen where the architect is there and the contractor is there, and it's like been a year and more of building this thing, and my wife is there, and I said, April, who's my wife, um, how'd you like to move to the West Coast? And she said, okay. And, and you should have seen the look on everybody else's face in that moment. We ended up moving out to the Bay Area for that. So I moved out, and uh, th- we had also started a company at the time uh, called Essential Surfing Gear, ES Gear. We invented something called a browser companion, which is now everywhere. And it was um, and it was growing like crazy. We had a very strong engineering team in Pittsburgh, and I ended up attempting to move uh, sales and marketing to the West Coast. And... And, I, and also running this institute at the same time, which was somewhat disastrous in, in many ways, some, somewhat good in many ways. But we then moved the family west, and it was a really great place for us to live for some time. So is that uh, your time in Berkeley? Is that when you ran into Steve Blank? Uh, no, I met Steve Blank relatively recently, really? maybe four years ago here. So yeah. what, so what did you, while you're out in Berkeley, uh, how many other companies did you stand up out there? I never stopped to think about it. We did essential surfing. That was most of my life. Um, I, we invested in some other companies. I was, an, I was an advisor to a bunch of companies, but none that I did directly. That's you. And, and, um, but then, the, if you're, how many years were you out in Berkeley then? You're, uh, about six or seven years. Okay. Yeah. And so what We were in, actually lived in San Francisco, which is in the Bay Area, it matters whether you yes, say you're in East I mean, Bay, you're, yeah, the if city. You're, if you're yeah. in San Francisco and you're, you're at Berkeley, right. that's kind of a, a little bit of a commute. Yeah. There were, be, there were better schools for our kids in the city. And so when we, I had a house in Berkeley, which actually my family never saw because I was commuting for a year. And then uh, when we moved out, when the whole family moved out, we moved into the city. We lived right on the side of Golden Gate Park, which was terrific. Oh, that's a nice place. So what brought you to Georgia Tech? What was it? It was uh, around 2003. So the dot-com crash uh, caught us. Uh, it was around, I don't remember exactly when, maybe 2001, 2002. We, uh, we, we managed to sell uh, ES Gear, uh, which was good because alternatives were much worse. It was uh, the downdraft of the, um, 
there's a tough time. Uh, people don't remember it, but uh, this this may happen again. Uh, every first every customer uh, started acquiring every other customer, so the number of customers was decreasing by mm. having the acquisitions happen. Then eventually, there were no customers left to be acquired to acquire each other, and so it was a um, it was a very hard time to be in that business. But we managed to sell the business to a company that was in Chicago, so we really lucked out on that. And I turned to my wife and I said, this is really fun. You know, maybe we should just write checks and I can do more startups. And I've been doing academics for a really long time. And she said, if you want to do it, go for it. And so I, I had actually at the time a tenured position at Berkeley and a tenured position at Carnegie Mellon. I was hold and they were, oh, holding, wow. that they were holding for me. And I called them both up and I said, I'm not coming back, which is a weird thing to do in universities. People Absolutely. don't usually give up tenured positions. They probably looked at you with a very quizzical look. No, they actually get, uh, it's not so much that. I think people actually get upset when you do that because uh, you know, faculty members can't necessarily imagine someone not being a professor if they're a professor. And But then the dot-com cra dot crash happened in sort of full force and went from thinking, okay, this is fun, we'll just do startups and invest and get investors to feeling as though maybe I'd never work again. Mm. That's, a, that's a bad feeling. Yeah. Which, In some ways, it's odd. I'd recommend it to anybody because it, re it reorients you. Mm. It mm -hmm. gives you a better sense of what's important to recognize that uh, it's possible to not have work and it's possible and it's hard to get work. So it, it gives, it creates, uh, besides creating humility, it also gives you a sense of the importance of being able to create the work for people, which is actually part of what we, eventually that'll, we'll get around to, that's part of what Flashpoint uh, is about for me and what entrepreneurship ends up being about. And then after a year and a half of <laughs> playing a lot of tennis and golf and hanging out with uh, uh, people from what they used to call the Lucky Sperm Club on the <laughs> West Coast, who, who probably never had to work, but, uh, uh, I got a call from a friend um, who I knew for a lot of years, and he at the time was he was the chief technology officer at Hewlett Packard. But then they had a, um, a merger with Compaq, and he wasn't going to stay in that job. And he got recruited to Georgia Tech to be the dean of computing. And my recollection is I was calling him up, complaining a lot about not having stuff to do. And he would be on he would be answering the phone on the corporate jet to Singapore, and say, "Listen, can I talk to you about this later? We're about to land." And <laughs> so he didn't have a lot of sympathy. Yeah. And then he called me up one day, and he said, "I've got this opportunity to move to." Georgia Tech, the president, uh, who was uh, Wayne Clough at the time, and the provost, who was Jean-Louis Chameau, had decided they would invest in computer science at a time when nobody else was. So this was right in the middle of this downturn in the early 2000s. And they said, let's go there. Maybe we can do something, because that's pretty smart to do that, to invest in, during a downturn if it's never turned back. And I turned to my family, and I said, let's go. And my wife was, was up for it, and my kids were not up for it, but we came here. And... Uh, <laughs> That's that's how yeah, we ended up here. The kids don't usually have a really uh, voting stock, do they? Uh, well, <laughs> I don't know. I, I have this image of my daughter like dragging her feet out the window of the airplane the whole way here. In fact, she ended up uh, the first chance she could get. She moved back to the Bay Area, went to college out there. So you 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 arrive in 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 Atlanta. You come to Georgia Tech. And what was your impressions of the of the Atlanta technology scene? Yeah, I don't know. There wasn't one that I knew of. I wasn't really plugged into it. I came, our, my focus was, I was, I came here as an associate dean. We, the, we identified the number one problem in the College of Computing at the time was the undergraduate program was seriously broken. It, it had been in the newspapers front page last year or so for lots of reasons, including a lot of cheating scandals. There was tremendous uh, downturn in enrollments. Um, Turns out faculty weren't actually teaching undergraduates until they were juniors or seniors. They just were sort of disengaged. And uh, 
that was the task that was assigned to me, and I accepted the assignment. And so I spent a few years focused on the problem of how do you construct an undergraduate program that might work at a time when nobody really knew what that would be. And my last company, Essential Surfing Gear, was a, it was a consumer products company, and I learned a lot about constructing consumer products. And I had a, I had a friend, Steen Cantor, who was originally a business uh, advisor to us, and then I hired him as the executive vice president for marketing for that company, who had been the um, executive, who had been the president of IKEA International, and he knew a tremendous amount about consumer marketing, as you might imagine, coming from IKEA. So I learned a lot about brand, and I learned about consumer marketing. So I took on the problem of constructing the undergraduate program as if it were a consumer product problem. And I did something which is really different for academics. Uh, if you talk to a professor and say, how do we improve our undergraduate program? They'll tell you, well, in this compiler course, we need to buy a new book. And that's really not what the problem was. And I, I managed to convince people on the faculty to organize into committees that would then go out and get some insight into all the people that might care about what an undergraduate program was like. So first they talked to the students that were in the undergraduate program, and they talked to people who might be in the undergraduate program from high schools, and they talked to their parents, and they talked to the possible employers, and they talked to professors at other places who might want to take uh, students as graduate students. And it changed everything. We started to see what would be the meaning of an undergraduate program. And what 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 I came to, I'm not sure everybody came to it at the beginning, and it took a while to get this, was that um, there really was, you couldn't really make sense of an undergraduate program. In fact, nobody had really made sense of an undergraduate program in computer science at that time. If you looked at the competitors' websites like MIT or Carnegie Mellon or Berkeley or Stanford or those the top places, they would say, well, here's why you take computer science, because if you come here, you're not going to end up being a systems analyst. Or, or if you, or here they were saying you take computer science classes, go into computer science because it's the only major in which you can take a lot of different free electives. If you take back then, if you took mechanical engineering, you had like one hour or something per semester you could take, and computer science was much freer. So it was always these definitions by exclusion, as opposed to actually saying what it was. Or they would say things like, well, if you become a computer scientist, it's not about writing code and having pizza slipped under the door. It's and so we had to figure out what it was and. It took a different tack, actually, and I had had some experience in this. <clears throat> and when I was at Carnegie Mellon, there was a um, I ran the graduate programs there as an associate dean, and I faced a problem there, which I always thought to myself, if I ever face that problem again, which I never thought I would, I will solve it. And the problem there was, we tried to revamp the graduate program, and the thought was on the minds of everybody: Well, what's the core? What are the core set of classes? And to get the course out of classes, you walk around and you talk to faculty members and say, well, Scott, you know, what does every computer scientist need to know? And, and you give a list and you go to the next person, they give a list. And pretty soon you see that, well, if you just do that list, it's great. It's the core of computer science, but it's about a 15-year program. Because everybody thinks that everybody has to be just like them, and that doesn't really make any sense. So that's what, you can't really solve the core problem. But I had an idea, and the idea was, if you look at it from the point of view of the students, as opposed to the point of view of what the faculty think the students should look like. What does it look like? Well, for a student, and this is kind of geeky. Fortunately, the word doesn't end up sounding geeky, but in computers, there are these things, the processes that run inside computers are called threads. 
and computers have many threads running inside of them in parallel. And I thought, well, that's a little bit like what our students look like. They're taking this course to get this piece of information. They're taking that course to get that piece of information. They're running over to the psych department. They're running over to the English department. They're taking these, and they're for them, they're sort of executing a thread trying to get somewhere. Where are they getting? Well, they want to be like Bill Gates, or they want to be like Steve Jobs, or they want a job at Pixar, or they want or they want to work for a consulting place. And I thought, okay, that's what's really going on. These people are running through the program, and each of them is executing a thread. I said, well, what if we said to ourselves, what are the threads? And I went to the faculty and I said, well, what are the threads? I mean, suppose I said to you, you weren't allowed to have a core, but let's say you were allowed to have two-thirds of the classes that you normally would put into like a core curriculum. Could you tell me two-thirds of the classes that you think the students should take? And it doesn't have to be just in our college. That would, let's say, define like a goal. And so people came up with goals like computers and people. So you have to know how to run, not just the computer science stuff, but you have to know how to do interfaces, you have to know how the human visual system works so you can design interfaces, you have to know how people hear things and how audio files work. But there are also psychology questions. You have to take classes in psychology, you have to take classes to understand how people, how to run human studies, uh, human studies. And we ended up, I thought we'd end up with three or four of these. We ended up with nine, which I think we paired back to eight. And then we have these eight threads, and then here, here was the cool trick of it, was to say, okay, if you're an undergraduate, here's how you define a major. Pick two threads. And it turns out that when you did that, the intersection of two threads that they had to take ended up being like the core. So it became a solvable problem, and it was, uh, it was quite successful. It's called Threads. It's won all sorts of awards. Um, I, when uh, Tom, Thomas Friedman was in town giving a talk, I grabbed him at one point, and I said, you know, I think I have a solution to a problem that you've been working on. And he said, yeah, what? And then uh, I said a few words, and he said, well, come back to my hotel room, which is not as creepy as it sounds, because I, <laughs> I invited a friend. And um, he ended up writing an entire chapter in the book, The World is Flat, um, called The Right Stuff, about the work that I did here and the work that uh, Wayne Clough did to try to make Georgia Tech be a place where you could get students to do the right stuff. So that's what, that's what happened when I first came. And then around 2005-ish, the... the, the um, market came back and it was possible to do startups again and I turned to the dean and I said okay I think I've solved I did a pretty good job and looks like it's running for this threads program by the way at the time uh, MIT decided to take it on and uh, in a similar way and Stanford also and they, they wouldn't call it threads though because that would come from Georgia Tech someone called it streams and someone called it something else but it's all the same idea so that was looking pretty good and I said but you know this is other thing I know how to do that I, I think would be very interesting for us. Doesn't There are very few companies, if any at all, that have come out of computer science here, and I've had a lot of experience starting companies and raising money for companies. I wonder if it's possible for us to take an interest in doing that around here. And so he said, okay, well, why don't you become in charge of commercialization and do venture creation out of the College of Computing and see what you can do. And to do that, I thought, well, I haven't really done this in the South. I don't really know what that's like. So let me do one myself and see what that's like. And I had a lot of conversations with people in coffee shops until uh, two professors and a graduate student said to me that they know how to find all the bots on the internet, mm. which mm -hmm. was amusing because I sort of knew what a bot was, but I didn't really know what a bot was. Now everybody knows what a bot is. And uh, I said, okay, I'll partner with you. So we made ourselves like 25% equal partners and I became the CEO of this thing and I and I ran around and um, figured out what it was, and we got a first customer at Internet Security Systems, which, by the way, is an important side note that this morning was in a memorial service for John Imlay, who was the really the godfather of angel investing, but maybe the, the, the source of almost all tech 
companies in Atlanta. Yeah, yeah. Just so an, an amazing amount of impact that man made, not just with the company he founded, but all of the investments. Yeah, he's made. and I would say that everything that I've done in Atlanta has can trace its roots back to something that was important from from John. In fact, including investment. And uh, anyway, we started. So we started this company called Dumbala. We were very successful, and I was able to um, run out west and ran around and I pretty good at this by now. We met with uh, uh, six um, venture firms and got five term sheets. So everybody had told me it's impossible to raise money in Atlanta. And so here's the answer. It's not impossible to raise money in Atlanta. Money's fungible. It'll come from anywhere. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Kleiner wanted to get into the deal. NEA wanted to get into the deal. We ended up taking money from Sigma Partners, which was a good move. And we started Dumbala. And so from that experience and uh, learned that you could, I sort of learned the ropes locally and decided that was an interesting thing to do. So, and, and so going from Dumbala to Flashpoint, what was the what was that transition there? Was it now that I've started the company, you know, I've got it going, you know, let's. I got pulled into this in a totally different way than you might expect. Uh, about five years ago, the university senior leadership asked me and uh, another professor on campus, who's now the chair of the biomedical engineering department, named Ravi Balankanda, if we would co-chair a task force on innovation. The, there was a, a strategic planning committee that, uh, process that um, set forth a, procedure, uh, a strategic plan for the university that for the first time in the university's history actually had a bullet point that said innovation and entrepreneurship, which I read as the ability for people to do more than just teach and do research, but actually create wealth. And I don't, I don't mean wealth in the narrow way of just making money for people. I mean wealth in the sense that you create societal benefit, that, pe- that people's lives get better which people up until then have been talking about in terms of tech transfer and commercialization, for example. And uh, Steve Cross, who was the executive vice president of research, is someone I know, and we actually had overlapped at other in the previous part of our lives when he was running the uh, Software Engineering Institute in, at Carnegie Mellon, and I was a dean there. And, he, and he, he got tasked with this bullet point, and he turned to me and to Ravi and said, can you figure this out? And honestly, I said no, because <laughs> it's usually a thankless job. But then he convinced me that it was worthwhile. And I said, okay, but only if we can have everybody in the university on the task force who could ever say no to anything we come up with. Which, which, <laughs> That's a genius move. Which, well, <laughs> it's not a genius move. It's a, it's a move of uh, someone who's like been screwed by these things before or, or hasn't worked out before. Genius comes from pain, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Too much truth to that. We ended up... Um, uh, and it ended up making the whole thing take a lot longer, I'm sure. But I, but in the end, after a year of work, when we came to the place where we came to, and the conclusion was clear to everybody who was on the committee, at least on that day, everybody thought that what we were going to do next was their idea. Mm-hmm. And that made it a lot easier to do the next thing. And I would say the conclusion of the committee, which people, I don't mean for people to be upset when I say it this way, but I think it's true, and I think people got to this place, and it's not a negative, it's actually just a, a thing. All the mechanisms that had been in place at the university up until about three and a half years ago were actually operating about as well as any of them operate in any university anywhere. So if you looked at the incubator or the ATDC or you looked at the venture lab process or you looked at the technology licensing office, they were doing a really damn good job of what they were doing by their own measures, by external measures. So if you're asking yourself the question, okay, if you want to make a dramatic change in an environment where you can actually see something really different happening, can you do it by making things that are already working as well as they work better? And the answer is no, not really. You can make them a little better. And, and there were things that were done at the technology licensing office that made it 
better, significantly better, improved its uh, relationship with people on campus and its process for vetting and saying yes to technology licensing. And I'm sure there's some, been some uh, improvements in technology at the ATDC and Adventure Lab. But honestly, it's an adapt. Once it's clear that it's not a technical problem, which is just to make the current mechanisms better, it becomes an adaptive problem. And the way adaptive problems are is you have to come to the solutions with a more complicated mindset. You have to think differently. And so the net of the committee was, okay, we have to do, find an adaptive solution. And an adaptive solution typically is impossible. <laughs> but if, if it's ever possible, here's what we know from all the work that Clay Christensen at, at Harvard has worked on disruptive innovation says, here's the thing, you've you got to do it by experiments. And you have to run experiments. You, can, you run short experiments. And if they die, you bury them in your backyard. And if they don't die, then everybody has to somehow adapt to them. And the, the two things that he said with great certainty that he found was there are two ways that cause these kinds of experiments to always fail. One of them is that you fund them out of existing operations. Because what happens is if you fund them out of existing operations and they start not working, then the existing operation pulls the money back and says, see, I told you. And if they start working, then they start to threaten the existing operations who then complain that the reason that they're being threatened is because they don't have the budget that you gave to these other people <laughs> and they find a way to kill it. So there's sort of no way around that. Mm -hmm. And the second thing that kills these things always is that um, they have to align. So if you're trying to find something which is completely disruptively different, is going to go about things in a different way, and you say, and it has to align with the existing structure, you're sort of dead from the start. So, you know, for us, for example, when we started the experiment, which ended up being Flashpoint, they, people ask questions, like even Stephen Fleming, who was on the task force, is a very natural question. He says, okay, well, when I, people ask me, how do I say it fits with Venture Lab and ATDC? And, and, I had a, and the answer was, if you ever asked that question, and we couldn't say, it doesn't align. It doesn't have to align. Maybe someday, but it absolutely doesn't align. Then you're sort of done from the start. So to my surprise, uh, the administration and even the committee agreed that it would be a good idea to run this experiment. And then I put myself in this bind because I, I said this is what we should do and then they said okay <laughs> and then I ended up I found myself um, assigned assigned myself to this um, experiment and so I was a pure volunteer I, I took nothing from the university at, at all I in fact I took some funding that I had from a distinguished chair that I have and contributed that as well and uh, took a very small amount of money from the executive vice president's office to do the experiment and everybody else was, we were all volunteering and we set out to do this thing that's become Flashpoint. It wasn't called Flashpoint then. It had a, went through five names before it became Flashpoint. And we ran it as an experiment whose purpose was to do something. The thing that I set out in my head to do, and which I think was on behalf of this whole task force, was to do something which would have a, uh, the effect of, if it worked, it would change everybody's mindset, both on the campus uh, and the EI squared across town, in order to create a more complicated mindset that people could then work on to find ways to build structures that would then maybe disruptively be better at creating wealth than we were currently doing. And what happened with that was kind of, for me, was kind of interesting is the inception of something which I think is much bigger than I ever expected it to be, which is I picked as an experiment that, um, to just duplicate something that had been tremendously successful in Boston and in the Bay Area and it turns out it couldn't be done the way I thought it could be done. And it was in the 
and the possibility of failing to do it that way that I think we learned a lot more. But the original experiment was to take this Y Combinator concept, which was an accelerator concept, which was a $5 million seed fund, and some very talented uh, serial entrepreneurs who were helping teams work on it, which had shown at that point they had done 381 investments for a total of $5 million, and they created $4.7 billion worth of wealth back then, which is a really disruptive numbers, given that usually you think like at, most, at best one in a 1,000 companies succeed, they were getting 1,000x. I set out to, to see if we could just simulate them here in Atlanta around the university, and it turns out you can't, uh, but partly you can't because you can't get the money right because the universities can't write checks, but I was able to solve that by partnering with Sig Mosley, who was willing to help by standing up a fund alongside that, would, that was a little bit of an arms-length public-private partnership. But the other problem is that you can't actually get it um, found. You can't get the kind of talent that Paul Graham had amassed around Y Combinator to spend that much time with founders in Atlanta. You, they don't really exist in town, and even if they exist in town, they're not going to spend that time on this. It, that's what it seemed to me. And you can't fly them in. It didn't seem to work from the experience that other people were finding, that if you try to fly them in, it wasn't really enough. And for me, that was the, the inception point, the, the important point about Flashpoint was to run that experiment to discover you couldn't do it and then have to come up with something else that might work, mm-hmm. which I think we did, and I think we've some, somewhat lucked out, somewhat were smart about it. And now we have something which is really dramatically different than anything else that's around. It's not an accelerator. It looks really different than accelerators. And the way we work with founders is really different than anything, I think, in the whole world, honestly, at the moment. For for startups, it turns out it's not different than something that's been done for a while in very large funds. It's it's not actually different than what um, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger are doing at least from what we can tell from what Charlie Munger says, and I know it's not different from what Ray Dalio has been doing with Bridgewater Capital because now we're talking to the former COO of Bridgewater Capital, who's uh, Katina Stefanova, who's very, who wrote an article in Forbes about this recently, who's been very involved with us on this. So, so it is different. Um, and in what way is it different? I know you even have, you've developed a, almost an entire glossary uh, of terms uh, based on the, the methodology itself. You, you you said you used to call it accelerator. Didn't the accelerator model didn't work? And now you guys have uh, had a couple different descriptors. I would say here's how we came to it. It's it's more of a global question than a business question. The global question is: if you want to solve problems which are really at scale, and you want to solve problems in 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 that, Eric Schmidt recently said something interesting. He said every problem can be solved through entrepreneurship and innovation. There's a certain truth to that, that sort of the essence of human nature is we have this capacity to be innovative and, and be entrepreneurial and find new ways to solve things. That's at, the, that's at the heart of it. But if you look around, what you see is enormous numbers of failures. You see a very, very small number of successes, which we, we celebrate in the biggest ways. You know, Amazon, this is, the internet, this is a huge expense. All the amazing successes we celebrate, but it hides from us the enormity of the failure rate. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's almost a delusion that we've, we've created. Yeah, I don't know if it, well, maybe it's a delusion, but we kind of overlook it. Uh, the same way we kind of overlook all the people that lose in the lottery. Yeah. And we Except put on that TV, winner, we right? yeah. put on the winner. Yeah. And that's a lot of what I think the world looks like if you start to look at it and you start to care, actually, whether or not you could do something in which 
innovative efforts and money that goes towards innovation and people who are potential customers or beneficiaries of the innovative efforts who are not getting the benefit. I don't think as people we're really going into these things to fail, but I think we are failing at astoundingly high rates. And I think people get frustrated, Merrick, when they come to a demo day for Flashpoint because they're expecting a demo day in the in the traditional sense of an accelerator demo day where there's going to be a team that's going to come up there and they're going to talk about the, you know, the the hockey stick graph and they're going to talk about here's and show here's the technology and and wow people. But yeah, why do you think that? Why do you think people do that? Well, I think that's the frame that's in their head, right? But I think you know you said something earlier that I think is a key insight here is that. You've, you're approaching this from how do we create societal wealth. Um, and one of the things that you're really keyed in on is is helping people who are wanting to create uh, startups and companies understand what's really holding them back from that. It's, it's, it's in some way, uh, can become frustrating because people want to see that demo. But really what you're teaching is someone a way to think is, is the main, main uh, product of, of what Flashpoint is, it seems to me. Is that is it something well? It's that, interesting you're saying about frustration. I'm, I'm not I'm not sure that I've heard that same frustration, but but maybe I should listen more closely to to that. I mean, it's it's very different. People say. Let me. One of the ways that's interesting that for me that's different is, and a friend just said this to me yesterday. He said, you know, I've been coming to demo days, and I, and I go to a lot of them. This is someone who's a a mentor and investor who's recently moved to Atlanta from the West Coast, so he has a lot of perspective. So first of all, people uniformly say that the, the demos, that is the presentations are like, and I don't know what this number means, but they're like three times better than the presentations that come from other accelerators. So mm-hmm. so that's nice to hear. I don't, I can see why they might say that. But he said, there's something about these demo days that's different, which is they have a humanity to them. They, they have a, they're not just people standing up and selling some crazy wussy wig idea or wizzy idea that, and claiming that they're going to have some ridiculously great outcome and then sitting down and it's all about like their great success and their great crazy vision for the world. There is something different. And what we found, maybe that was an accidental part, but we found that what, what seems to happen if, when I look back in my, across my own career and failures and when I talk to other people about what was causing failures and then I found people who have been studying this in other places, there are people, behavioral economists, behavioral decision theorists have been studying something very similar. What I, what I found is something that actually forces you to come closer to making this uh, process which has more humanity to it because in the end it's about humanity. In the end, it's not your cool browser thing it's not your cool you know product that's going to look up things on the web for somebody it's about the people that are going to use it and unless you take an interest in the customers and the customers uh, you know right now are people they you then you're really paying attention to perhaps the wrong thing and so the more you can pay attention to the customers as people turns out it also tends to humanize you as a person and that the humanity is actually really present and it even turns out to be true for investors. One of the things you'll find out about investors is they, uh, angel investors especially, they're typically investing not for particularly economic reasons. They, they may talk about economic reasons, but actually they're typically investing based on relationships and, and connections that they have with founders. And we're having a lot of success with the startups from Flashpoint, I think partly because when they talk to investors, the investors can see in them their interest in their customers and they can take an interest in them as people. And I think that's quite important. The other side of it, though, and this is something that we've been learning a lot and bringing in to Flashpoint, is how people 
actually make mistakes in making decisions. And when I say mistakes, it's not really, I don't mean like, you know, oh, you made a mistake. What I mean is that your brain conspires in ways to lead you in directions that may not be where you actually meant to go. Mm -hmm. And that is in a category of things called cognitive errors and cognitive biases. And something that's interesting in the space of, for example, investing in early stage startups is, and you probably would notice this about yourself, one of the errors, one of the ways you can fool a person into making, uh, uh, into not noticing that you're helping them make a bad decision is you only talk about the maximum upside. Mm. You don't, people misperceive the likelihood of a risk, even really, really small likelihoods they think of as being possible. And they're overwhelmed by the possibility of the maximum upside. And typically when they think about making angel investments, they think about them as in the category of I'm doing this because I'm thinking that maybe my portfolio will go from, let's say, being 10 million to 50 million. And I can't imagine how I'm going to do that in the S&P. But maybe if you tell me I'm going to be part of a Google, mm -hmm. that's a shot. And in that moment, when a team stands up and says, uh, you should look at us because we are doing something which is going to be the next Google, and they do it in some way that sort of sounds plausible, even though it's not. It it causes people's it causes investors to make a mistake, and so I think that people catch on to this, and it's a kind of way of peddling influence. Um, and I think it's I'm actually it's it's an ethically challenging question to to like know that you can do that, and to then wonder whether or not you should encourage teams to do that, which is what most accelerators are doing. Our feeling is we'd rather see investors make good decisions, which are actually good decisions, and enable them to do that. Because then the chances are they'll end up with more money, which will make them actually be better, better angel investors. So, you know, I think what you might be saying when you say people are frustrated is they kind of wish that they could be fooled that way. But, but I think our strategy is going to be a little bit different, which is we're going to help investors who ought to be investing in these things actually make good decisions about investing. And then when they do, I think they could be good decisions and then we can help them be successful with what they're doing as opposed to trying to fool them by making wild statements about maximum upside. It's, it's no different, by the way, than the way people market lottery tickets. Mm -hmm. They don't tell you about, you know, what the odds are. Yeah. What they do is they show you the, you know, the winner mm -hmm. buying yachts mm -hmm. and that's what you focus on. Well, I, I think what, what you just worked us through, it really helps explain kind of that underlying when I, when I, when I say the word frustration, it's more of they're wanting to see the traditional accelerator pitch day and that, you know, that's, they want, it was almost, that's the product. And, but you have, you have such a substantially different, um, whole mindset and methodology and approach to the world, uh, that they don't, I don't think they know what to do with it. If they're coming in, we're not having, um, uh, yeah. With and so, you know, on the other hand, if you look at the, yes, eventually people will start to notice the outcome. So, you know, there are a lot of people who are claiming for the success, but I think the fact of the matter is that we've had a, almost 40 some odd teams go through Flashpoint. The, they started at Flashpoint. Mm -hmm. That's it. And, that, and part of the way they started at Flashpoint is even if they had done something before, they changed completely at Flashpoint because that's the nature of this work. And the value of that portfolio is well over a half a billion dollars after three and a half years. And well over $150 million has gone into those from absolutely first-rate investors like Andreessen, Kleiner, um, FF Ventures, Google Ventures, Institutional Venture Partners, uh, Sigma and Sigma Prime. And those aren't people that normally invest in the Southeast. In fact, for many people from the, these companies in the West Coast and from Boston and New York, 
they had never invested in this area. Uh, now, when they leave Flashpoint and they go over to ATDC, they go they go to TechSquare Labs, they go to ATV, and then people you know, talk about them because they did have they touched them. But I think what's going on with these companies is they're starting with something that's different than what other companies are starting with, which is they're actually seeing an authentic demand, and then they're building towards the authentic demand. And if you actually can see the authentic demand, which is the what it is that will draw customers to buy you, which or what you do, they'll actually go to some trouble to get it. Not like you have to convince them, but it's actually it's so much in their interest that they will find some way to force you to provide something for them. Mm-hmm. It's less clear to me that you have to convince um, you know crazy angel investors who are only investing on the potential of the upside. To invest, that's a little bit of an experiment. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll be wrong about that, and we're better off. You know, maybe it's better to fool investors, like most uh, angel investors are. Uh, most uh, I, don't, I don't mean that angel investors are fool, but most of the startups are trying to fool angel investors by this trick of only talking about the maximum upside, uh, and it does work. But it's not. We I wonder whether it's necessary. And for us, we're much more interested in creating wealth and doing it in a legitimate way. And less trying to just do all the fluff and pageantry and, and excitement about it. So, in in terms, if if you take that you know one step farther, are are you or further? Are you? Would it be a better metric of success to to truly see how many of these founders you know go on to you know to continue to use that methodology? Yes, and I think to a, almost to a person, you'll find that they say that they do. It changes them. This is even quite um, quite successful serial founders, mm-hmm. and even they even many people stay in touch with us. It's not even if what they were doing then didn't interest them or didn't work out the right way. They then do their second company. I'm just thinking of one that recently got uh, Predicto was a founder through Flashpoint. Didn't really find it, but as far as we can tell, really started really continued to use these methods, and his company was recently. And had a nice, nice investment round, and and if I talk to the founders who've gone through, one of the interesting puzzles for them is how do they teach the people that come in as as hires, especially when they're growing really fast, mm, yeah. in order to be able to have some of these ideas and uh, and build that into the culture of their company. That's something we're spending a lot more time on at Flashpoint is teaching people how to do that now. I, I would imagine that because you know if people are used to the traditional accelerator model, it's just if you're you're successful, you're coming in mentor, you're just going to go and say what you, you, you your worldview is, but there's uh, not you, their worldview is, but with the flashpoint approach, there is there is some you know there's the science that you've 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 rooted it to, and it almost seems like they're, and then I don't know this, but I'm more curious is are, when someone's mentoring, when someone's coaching, do they go through that kind of indoctrination around some of these ideas? Uh, not yet, uh, although some what we've what we do now is we have some mentors in every batch who are we call them ride-alongs. They they're willing to come to, or they, they sign up to come to all of the uh, workshops and classes and uh, uh, that that we run for the work for the startups. They're a little bit in a different category for us. They're they're more like fellows of startup engineering, which is the, what the or authentic innovation is what we're calling it more now. Uh, the regular mentors, uh, we tend to bring them in later in the process. Now they they tend to be. Um, what they really bring to the game typically is a lot of very practical knowledge about what it's like to be an entrepreneur from the first first case, just dealing with the ups and downs and, and dealing with uh, the, the, you know, what's it like to try to deal with teams and raise money and 
actually figure out how to sell something and the, the things that you only really get by a lot of experience. They're, um, and I think most people will, tell, will even admit this about themselves, they don't really know the answer to the question of what will somebody buy. If you ask people, they'll certainly tell you their opinion. Yeah. But if you ask them to bet on their opinion, I think they would be slow to bet because in truth people really know that they can't predict what other people are going to do. So, uh, And one of the things that, of course, founders are confused about is, well, but the mentor, this mentor said that, and that mentor said that, and now you feel like you have mentor whiplash. Uh, so what we, do, what we do a lot of work on is to help founders be able to discern what it is that they have to learn by themselves and what they can rely on mentors to know about. And so then we bring in mentors relatively late in the process these days. Yeah, I noticed that on the, this batch five where the mentors seem to be later yeah. as opposed to when they were so early in the other yeah, and, well, And we're learning about that. The other thing about mentors that is, gonna, is a problem all across the country, not just here, is mentors get burnt out. Mm-hmm. You know, how many times can you do this? And mm-hmm. as a mentor, uh, and before you think, well, okay, why am I doing this? And, and there's, you know, and there's 30 different accelerators, calling them accelerators, and they all want mentoring help. Um, so in the, in the long run, part of the reason that we're so excited about what we're doing with Flashpoint is that we have method, we have process, we have theory, we can actually teach people stuff, which gives us the, the chance to, and I think not just the chance, I think it's certainly going to be what happens, that uh, we have something which can actually be built into a process and you can teach people how to do it and you don't have to rely on this kind of artisanal process of somebody who got rich on some company then thinking that they know how to do it multiple times because uh, for, I'll tell you two things. The first is I don't think that they can do it multiple times reliably and I think that they think they can. And I think that the reason that they can't and the reason that they think they can are sort of the same, which is these kind of cognitive illusions that make it, it's the same thing that happens just sort of across the board, people think there's such a thing as like a hot hand in in basketball. No matter how many statistical studies show that people don't actually have a hot hand, it feels like it. Or the people that, that you got to roll the dice and uh, and shoot craps, and you know, well now it's going to come up because it didn't come up yet. It's just a natural human thing to have this kind of gambler's fallacy be part of you. Even people who study it experience it. It's you know, but if you want to do something which is real, and if you want to reliably produce results, you have to overcome some of these things that are otherwise just feel right, although they're not actually right. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you've demo day in Atlanta just happened. You've got uh, a couple, couple more demo days happening with this batch five. Where, where are you headed next with this, next this next batch? week? We're visiting uh, 1871 in Chicago. My friend Howard Tolman runs 1871. And uh, he's been very interested in startup engineering, and we're going to bring our teams up there. They'll meet uh, other founders, but of course they'll they'll meet with investors. Chicago is a kind of happening place in the startup scene these days. I'm liking what Howard's doing a lot up there. And then we go to New York. We have a demo day in New York. This is the first time we're going to Chicago for demo days. Uh, we've always taken the teams to New York and then to the Bay Area, so we're going to New York. And then um, two weeks after that, Andreessen Horowitz invited us to and the sponsoring our team is to do a demo day hmm. at their space uh, in Menlo Park, and that's, that's on nice. April, April 29th, so that's really great. That's good stuff. And it's great for the teams. I mean, the teams get a lot of exposure. It gives us a chance to give other people a, a view into this way of doing this work. And there's a, a certain amount of uh, 
there's like a crucible you can put teams in and a lot of the crap burns off and that's that's part of what happens when you put them in front of investors and other audiences yeah you certainly can tell that so uh, after this batch what's what's the plan for flashpoint for the next uh yeah, so there's another batch that starts. Uh, the applications will be uh, will be up and available uh, at the website in the next week or so. And the next batch should start about mid-June. Uh, Flashpoint works with both startups and corporate innovation teams, and we've had a lot of success. We had a lot of success with the Coca-Cola company in this batch. And, uh, what they said to us uh, was very gratifying, and they said it on stage. And, and I think it's true that um, we were able, able we were able to help them figure out a product pipeline faster and cheaper and arguably better than they could do before using their own methods, and that they saw some product opportunities that they believe that they would never have seen by their own methods. So we're pretty excited about that and being able to do that with other corporate uh, innovation teams. Um, there's a group in Europe that's raising a fund that will be Flashpoint at Kindertech in Switzerland, and uh, if they complete that fundraise, we'll end up uh, powering them. We're attempting to make this uh, material more available. We do that through uh, two and a half day workshops. Um, people, we go around a lot of places giving talks um, and we're, uh, you know, we're, <laughs> there's a lot happening. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think, I appreciate you, you spending the, the amount of time that we've had exploring this, more than we had scheduled, but I don't, I, I think it's, it's greatly underappreciated what, the idea of what Flashpoint is now. I mean, the the the, the spark and the catalytic effect that you've had on the entrepreneurial scene here in Atlanta because of the investment in these founders um, and teaching them how to think in a different way. Thanks for saying that. I mean, we, we were very, I was very intentional. We were very intentional about that. So we, we thought, because part of the innovation task force is not just looking at campus, but looking across. And by the way, Flashpoint's not just about campus. We take founders anywhere. One of the founders was a high school opt-out, is what he says. <laughs> <laughs> and his, his company's doing extraordinarily well. Uh, right, so we, the analysis we, that I made was goes like this. People are always complaining there's no venture funds or very few venture funds in Atlanta. And I think the reason for that has been that there's no need for them. That the number of, uh, it seems to me, and I, I'll, I'll stand by this, any company that opens up in Atlanta looking for capital that is investable, money will come here. It will come here from other places. And, but there just weren't that many investable opportunities showing up. So people could service Atlanta market with capital by getting on airplanes and calling people like SIG up or me up or other people up and saying, you know, do you have any teams that we should come look at? They fly in town, they see a bunch of teams for two days and they choose one or, or don't choose one and they make an investment. So for me, the, the, the insight was if we could create a pipeline which started to generate reliably investable opportunities at a rate that couldn't be serviced by getting on airplanes, that the market would work and we would start seeing funds show up here. In addition to that, if we could show people how to do that and show other people that it was possible to show people how to do that, it might unlock a lot of things. And that was very intentional and that's how Flashpoint started. And when I look around and I look at some of the things that have happened, the ATV, the other co-working spaces, the, mm -hmm. well, a lot of stuff. Happened because of, because yeah. of Flashpoint. Yeah, We had two mentors who came to Flashpoint. They decided, wow, there's a space needed for the team to come out of Flashpoint, which is actually exactly the thesis, that if we could create investable opportunities, people would then meet, meet the market. And uh, Keith and... Um, um, Ethan, Ethan, he, Kevin. Ethan, Kevin. I was, I was Ethan called Ke Heaven or, Heaven, Kevin, or yeah. Keith. But, Ethan, but, Kevin are fabulous, and they had their own company, and they were looking... And they were mentors in Flashpoint 
Still and at that time, point. there was no real open space for anybody in Nowhere. the start of Spain. Nowhere. And then from that, you know, you've had folks that then formed the nucleus of Atlanta Tech Village that Completely. went up there. And the Atlanta Startup Village meetup started at Hypopotamus. Uh, you know, and even, in fact, uh, some of the uh, investable opportunities, like Paul Judge found uh, what is now Monsieur, uh because... Uh, and Hypopotamus. At Hypopotamus right. for a, a Flashpoint company, uh, Texturize, who was having a, a party. Exactly. And they, they, they brought in this MyBar thing, which is now Monsieur. So it's... All yeah. of that stuff happened. Yeah, I don't want to, you know, it, it's a it's a collective thing, yeah. but I, I do think we should take some credit, and we did it quite intentionally. We said we were going to do it. I remember there was a key moment for me that people kept coming up and said it's a key moment. It's first Flashpoint demo day at GTRI. Filled the room. It was the first time that room had ever been to capacity and beyond, and it was all the people in town who ever wrote checks to anybody and all the entrepreneurs together. And I remember standing on stage and I was thinking, what the heck do I say? What's the thing that's most important to say? And I said, here's what it is. Up until now, everything that I was saying was sort of in the category of like startup riot. It was these kind of show and tell things that weren't real. It was an audience full of people who didn't have checks talking to a bunch of people who really weren't ready to take money anyway. And, and it was all about contests. Like, well, who was the best? And people were saying, well, that was a bad one and that was a bad one. And I'm thinking, here's the deal. They're all going to fail anyway. It's just the, the numbers are not, it's not because I want them to fail. It's just the truth. The truth is like maybe one in a thousand, maybe one in 4,000 are the true numbers of what these things work. And the truth is what makes it work is when the whole community gets behind it and says, we're going to figure out a way to put our fingers in the scale and get these things to work, even though they're currently broken. And I and I think that's part of the secret of the Bay Area, and it's not been the secret here. And I stood up on the stage, and I think I remember what I said. I, I I said our job now that these guys have pitched, or as you're about to see them pitch, is to find a way to come together as individuals and as small groups and make it possible for them to succeed. And I think people like Alan Tatel, I don't know whether it's only that, but and and Chris Klaus and others who are in the audience took some of these kind. Paul Judge, I'm sure. Other people took some of these ideas and started to put their time into it. And for me, I look back and say, I know what Atlanta was like before that meeting, and I know what Atlanta's like after that meeting, and I like Atlanta after that meeting a lot better. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So many things going on, and uh, it would be fun to do an infographic uh, tying back to you know the, the genealogical charts of what touched what, and I think you, you would be hard-pressed, just as you say, John Imlay played a huge role, hard-pressed, not... Not to have Flashpoint uh, at, at a center. Yeah, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll just let me put myself in the right place. I think I've come up with a lot of good ideas for Flashpoint. I think I've taken a lot of heat and pushed Flashpoint. I think that people associate with Flashpoint. But there's a lot of people behind Flashpoint that made Flashpoint possible, I think. But Peterson is there. I think Steve Cross is there. I think people uh, who were on the, uh, on the task force, it was came from ideas that we developed there. So it's uh, – and <laughs> in the early days when uh, I was – a little uh, dejected by how difficult it was to get it started and going. Um, I was amazed that when we had our first successes, how many people were claiming that it was uh, it was <laughs> due to them. And, and then I, I realized, but you know what? It, in some ways, it really is due to a lot of people, and and people should claim credit for it. And we should all claim credit for it. I think uh, you know, you yourself have, have played a role in, in Flashpoint. You were partnered with us early mm -hmm, on absolutely. for Demo Day. Thank you for that. Oh, you uh, And by the way, someday someone should do a podcast like this about you and, and how you, with your kind of crazy shenanigans, come into town and uh, uh, create a lot of uh, hype yeah. <laughs> and visibility. It's a skill that we didn't have in Atlanta and appreciate it much. Well, I, I, it's always nice to have substance to go around with hype, so 
I, I do appreciate that, though. Thanks for those words. But not, and, you, and to your point, I think that's a good way to close is that, you know, Flashpoint is not just a singular person. It's, it is certainly, a, it's a way of thinking, but it's it's certainly a, a tribe of people, a collective. It's uh, a new movement and a, yeah. and a clan and a... And, and very much a guild, that, maybe something that that sets Atlanta apart on the map. And I, you know, glad to have you document that for us. Thank you, and thank you for doing this. Yeah. Well, is there anywhere? As we, I know we mentioned it, but there's people listening. They want to learn more about Flashpoint. Where do they go? Flashpoint.gotech.edu. Mm-hmm. And you're on Twitter. You're on that on Twitter. Flashpoint GT. Or uh, Mer- at Merrick First. Is Merrick good. First as well. Right. You drop a lot of knowledge up there. I do. That's yeah. good. And uh, there's a lessons tab. If you go to the if you go to the web page, there's a little tab that says lessons. And if you want to learn more about the ideas, you can click there. Some videos that people tell me they like to watch. Well, we've got uh, show notes that we do for every episode, so we'll make sure that all of those links are there. So, Merrick, thanks for coming in. Thanks. For Thank you for time. the time. Well, good luck on the road trip. Thanks. See you. TechSquare ATL is a media studio connecting you to the heart of Atlanta's tech community. Copyright Sandbox Communities LLC.